Uh, welcome to St. Paul's uh, Cathedral Forum, Sunday Forum. It's very good to see you this afternoon. My name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here. And it's my great uh, privilege to be able to introduce today's speaker. This, of course, is the first Sunday uh, of Lent and it seemed highly appropriate to pick up the theme that uh, Stephen uh, has written about. I think it was, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that if your sin finds you out, why worry? It's when it finds you in that the trouble begins. <laughs> and uh, so we pick up the theme of sin on this first uh, Sunday of Lent. Um, I don't really need to introduce Stephen too much to you, I, I, I should think, but uh, Stephen Cherry is uh, currently the Dean of King's College, Cambridge. He has degrees in uh, psychology and in theology. He's very much active as a writer and speaker in the areas of Christian spirituality and uh, practical theology. Uh, prior to being uh, Dean at King's, uh, he knows what it's like working in a place like this because he was a residential canon of Durham Cathedral uh, and worked uh, as Director of Ministerial Development in the diocese there. Uh, he's also the author, as I say, of many books, uh, including uh, recently the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book, Barefoot Disciple, Walking the Way of Passionate Humility, and Healing Agony, Reimagining Forgiveness. And he's just brought out uh, the ominous title, The Dark Side of the Soul, An Insider's Guide to the Web of Sin. And uh, I won't say anything more, but I would ask us now to listen to Stephen as he expands for about 40 minutes or so, and then time for questions on why he's written this book. Stephen Cherry. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark, um, for your welcome. And thank you, everyone, for, for coming along to listen to what I might have to say on this subject. It's a bit of an off-putting subject really, so I'm all the more uh, pleased to see you here. And I hope that I can say something of, of interest. I suppose my first point is that the language of sin isn't going to go away. There are various people who feel that it should. And indeed, when the book came out, it was about a year ago actually, I had um, quite a difficult weekend because there was a pretty hostile review of it in The Guardian and the following, on the Saturday and on the following morning on the Sunday, I did an interview on the Sunday program in which the um, presenter was somewhat dismissive of the idea that there might be a helpful book on this subject uh, today. And so I didn't feel I got a very good, good start. But there we, there we are. The, the language of sin isn't going to go away, um, at least in church. Um, but it did occur to me uh, that one of the problems we have with much of our church language or the language going on inside this and worship and in hymnody and indeed scriptural language is that the word sin is alive and well. However, in everyday discourse, the word sin is far from alive and well and is never used really in a straightforward way in conversation or ordinary life. If it is used, it's used in an exaggerated or ironical kind of way. And I thought, well, how can, how can it be then that we could have a satisfactory um, liturgical and spiritual life uh, if the, one of the primary building blocks of it uh, is a word we don't take terribly seriously? So surely it's quite important to try and figure out what a, a sensible and healthy understanding of sin might look like today. So if you look at any standard introduction to theology, you will find something along the lines which says, well, you need to think about sin in the Christian tradition in two ways, really. There is, first of all, original sin, and secondly, there is actual sin. So original sin is, of course, the idea that there is something fundamental about all human beings who have lived since the time of Adam and Eve, um, which is wrong about them and that there is this tendency uh, within us not to get things right, uh, and if you like to have a, if you imagine yourself as a, 
a nice bowl going along a bowling green. You wouldn't go in a straight line. You'd all be, always be tilting. There'd be a bias to go somewhere in the wrong direction. That's something fundamental, um, but not unique, not created into us from the beginning, but the, uh, what we decided a long time ago to do with our free will. Free will always kind of goes wrong, you might say. Um, that, that idea, obviously um, hugely influenced by St. Augustine, but not uh, uh, an idea that was original to him. And then there's actual sin. Well, this is, of course, uh, doing wrong things, uh, transgressing uh, the law, uh, the expectations, uh, what is it going beyond the bounds of what is acceptable in thought, word, and deed. And both of these are, as it were, fair enough, but they are, and I don't want to spend a lot of time critiquing them and seeing how far you can get with them, but they both seem to me to leave quite a lot of space uh, in the middle, as it were, where most of life occurs. When what's at issue is not the fact that you are sort of out of true and are going to end up in the ditch, nor is uh, it that you're actually going to go about breaking one of the Ten Commandments or, or, or other laws, as it were. But there's the rest of life in the middle in which all sorts of stuff is going on and about which people write novels and gossip with each other and so on, where things are not really as they should be and yet it's quite difficult to put your finger on what's wrong. And when you look at um, the harm that that's caused to people and when things start to go wrong and you try and trace back and you do it's very rare I think that you find at the origin of all that someone intending for harm to happen it's a relatively rare thing to have so what, what are we to make of or where, where is our language uh, for describing uh, the middle parts of everyday life which are not quite satisfactory and this is where this is the area which um, I felt and still feel uh, the Christian tradition of talking about sin can be very helpful. So it's helpful in two ways. One, one is that it's, uh, I think it can be a, a lively language for anyone. Secondly, it's very helpful uh, religiously and spiritually for Christian people because it allows them to make the connections uh, between what their, their, their lived experience and agonising day by day and what they're talking about in church. I mean, if, if you live in a situation as, uh, of a cathedral, say, where you have perhaps choral matins in the morning and choral evening song in the afternoon, and, say, and at matins you say the general confession in the prayer book and then at evening song you say it again, uh, you might wonder to yourself, well, whether, whether or not you really need to, because you might have had a blameless lunchtime. You, you uh, have not actually transgressed as far as you can uh, work out at all. On the other hand, there may be other stuff going on that, that is relevant to that. If so, what is it and how do we talk about it? One, one thing that I've always found quite helpful and psychologically realistic in the writing of St. Paul is that part of Romans 7 where Paul says, rather complains at himself and says that he finds himself doing the things he shouldn't doing and uh, doing, not doing what he should do despite his best intentions. The idea there, sometimes called Paul's problem, that even wanting to get things right doesn't mean we do get things right. And that there is this kind of irony about our willpower, which is it's quite, it's quite powerful, but not quite powerful enough. So uh, we can be determined in the face of opposition from without often, but there kind of can be an opposition from within against which we are relatively powerless. And that, I think, is, is quite a helpful insight uh, for building a contemporary understanding um, of, of, um, of, of, of human nature and, sin, and sinfulness and how we are before God. I don't know whether you've ever noticed this. I've touched on this point already, but it, it's a really big example of it happened to me. And when I, I said to someone with whom I was working, not a particularly close colleague, but someone. I really thought this person had done something inappropriate. Um, what, and we had a bit of an argument about it. And uh, during the course of this rather extended argument, um, because the person thought he was, it became clear that the person thought he was being helpful. Uh, and that, in fact, the fact that he thought that he was helpful meant that his actions must be considered to be praiseworthy. I said, no, you were trying to be helpful nonetheless. Um, 
it wasn't right that you should do this because it had these following, and, and so it went on. Quite, uh, quite a typical situation of wrongdoing, I thought. Whereas often, either in oneself or in, in others, you will see, well, actually, I, I was doing it for the best reasons. Now, it doesn't mean to say you didn't make a complete hash of a load of stuff. I'm thinking about sin, actually, has really made me question something I always used to believe uh, when I was younger, which was intentions were somehow purifying. That, you know, as long as you wanted to do the right thing or your heart was in the right place, that was okay. I don't think any such thing anymore. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of the worst things that happen are perpetrated by people who believe themselves to be really well-motivated and are trying to do the right thing. They're just not being very wise about it. Um, so can you... But is that to say that, you know, failure to be wise is actually to be sinful? That sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? But maybe that's some of the territory into which I'm going to take us. <coughs> the other, other thing I put on the table sort of before I start, or by way of introduction, is that when I, I had this idea of, of writing this book, um, and then I tried to start writing it, and I, I found it rather difficult, actually. Uh, as Mark was saying, I'd written a few books before, um, and so I knew that writing books was difficult, but this seemed really difficult. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm not going to get anywhere like this. So I just changed my plan entirely, and I thought, well, this is far too difficult to sort of say A, B, C, D, like, write a big essay on sin. So I, I set about it in a different way, uh, which was to write a, a novel based on letters uh, and emails exchanged between uh, two characters, one of whom was uh, a young woman living in London who had had a very secular uh, education and was very interested in doing good. So she was into... Um, trying to support international development, uh, and so on and so on. Really, really wanted to do good and live a good life. Didn't have any religious uh, uh, vocabulary in her head. She then decided that she would ask these questions, which were sort of in disguise religious questions. Didn't get anywhere, any sensible answers out of anyone. So then she remembered that her mother had once told her, if you ever get stuck in life, you should get in touch with... This person, who was her mother's teacher at school, a nun, and was now living as a hermit. So she started writing down her questions uh, and sending them off to this nun who was living all on her own on the Isle of Man and had all the time in the world to think about writing wise answers. So this was to be the basis of, of the novel, and they were to develop a relationship. One or two people more got, more got drawn in, and the subject was to be working out what sin meant today, basically. That was all very, very much fun, and I quite liked doing that, except, of course, that while it was one thing to kind of imagine the questions that the young woman living in run London would come up with, it was pretty tricky to think of what the wise answers <laughs> to those questions would be. And I got, got her stuck in the same rut, really, of really not having a clue what to say about this. And, um, I, but I did press on with it, and I wrote the thing. Uh, and then we dis discussed it with my editor, because the book was commissioned by this stage. Uh, and a few people at the publishing house had looked at it, and they said, you know what, we prefer to know what you think than what you think this nun living on the Isle of Man thinks. <laughs> so they pushed me back, so I had to put aside that big project. And I, in a way, I'd like to come back to it again, but with a freer agenda, because I'll tell you what really sunk that. That was that the com while the conversation did develop between these, these people, and it got quite interesting, and the, I, you know, I needed to bring in another nun who had actually, she'd worked in the City of London for a bit and then given that all, all that up, but she knew about how money worked. She could really help with the avarice and greed and all that and, and so on. The problem was that the conversation was constrained by the need to be didactic about sin. That's basically what killed it off. That taught me something, the difference between a novel and an essay. As an essay, you expect uh, the author to stay with the subject even when it gets dull. With a novel, you expect someone to sort of move around and just stay with the interesting bits as life goes, goes forward, even if the interesting things are difficult. So that, that's what I want to say by way of contextualising um, the effort that I was making. Um, and I'm going to put a really simple idea in front of you now, um, which I have thought of since um, writing the book, and I rather wish I'd put it in it, but it's so simple as it might not even be worthy of being written down. But this is my proposal. Let's suppose that sin is, terribly anthropomorphic this, a big build up for it. Suppose that sin is uh, anything 
that would make God frown. Anything about us, what we say, do, think, feel, or whatever, that would make God frown. And that's any such thing is what needs to be redeemed. Suppose something like that. And suppose, um, obviously I've got the possibility of God frowning, so we must have the possibility as well of God smiling. If we do a good act, something that's good, it would make God smile. Duty has been done, with good consequences flowing from that duty doing. No resources were squandered in the process. No one was hurt or neglected. Every now and again, something like that happens, I want to postulate. It's kind of thoroughly good. Not compromised in any way, not, not spoiled. Such a good thing happens. And why then, given that these good things happen, and God sort of smiles and glows when he uh, observes this, why try to take the smile off God's face, as it were, in, the, in our picture in, uh, in our own minds, by going on about original sin or primordial co- corruption? And saying, well, of course, human beings can never really make God smile because he's so cross with them about you know, the tree in the Garden of Eden and so on. So why spoil this, this possibility? And why, when we think about, even, even, I hope, as I was just saying that, and you were thinking about a situation that might make God smile or, or frown, why get into the whole uh, regime of thinking about rules and laws and transgressions? Because what we were talking about when we were talking about that area, what we were thinking about wasn't something to do with laws being transgressed or not. No one was imagining, well, God is smiling because I didn't steal anything today. That, you know, those negative sort of things. Just, this is just boundaries. These are boundary things. They're not, they're not the meat of life. Joan Chichester, the uh, American nun, has written this. Uh, The call to faith is not the call to surrender to a grinning, ghoulish God who tries creation for the sheer delight of the trial. It is the call to believe, like Jacob, who struggles through the night. And though we are in darkness, the dawn will come in its due time. For if God is in the depth of the heart, no amount of darkness can extinguish that presence. So when I talk about the dark, the title of the book is The Dark Side of the Soul. Um... I don't mean dark as in pitch dark, without light. I, I, what I would have preferred the title to be, it's not quite as catchy, would perhaps have been the murky side of the soul. That's semi-light, yeah, you like that, you get that instantly. Good, very good. How often do we do entirely good things? Or think entirely good thoughts? Or have absolutely the most Christ-like emotional response to some circumstances? been thinking a bit about compassion and thinking how difficult it is to get compassion quite right. Not too much or too little or kind of suddenly get excited because someone is really suffering a lot and you kind of get drawn into the suffering side of it. How do you get compassion quite right? And do you, would you be thinking that actually my compassion is flawed and that's a part of my sinfulness, that either I'm being too hard-hearted vis-a-vis this suffering or too sucked into it, and because I'm so sucked into it, I'm not much used to the person into whose little world of suffering I am drawn. We're very rarely caught making God smile complete. In other words, it's gradations of this smiling now. Because while the darkness in the heart is not the most important thing about us, it is really important part of who we are. Not the most important but a significant part. And that's what I feel we need somehow to uh, discover and explore sensibly and pastorally if we're to be, make this language of sin uh, more meaningful than it usually is to us. And the roots of the way of this way of thinking about sin uh, go back to the early years of Christian asceticism and desert monasticism. In particular, the way of thinking which I'm going to, to suggest to you goes back to Evagoras of Pontus, who lived in the 4th century. And he was, a, he was a hermit, living, as it were, amongst hermits. That's a contradiction, of course. So there are hermits all over the place, but no, not within speaking distance, as it were. But they did, have, um, they did know each other, and they cared about each other. And he particularly cared uh, about the other hermits, because, to be honest, he found being, 
being a hermit pretty difficult. Uh, and he found that being on your own, uh, being a bit sleep deprived, nutritionally deprived, all sorts of crazy stuff started going on in your head. And all sorts of thoughts started occurring to you which begin, began to get you down. And he, uh, in particular, identified eight thoughts. Uh, he wrote in, in Greek, and they, they were called legismoi. But people have translated that word as thoughts, which is the most banal thing, or passions, or demons. And he wrote and he taught in such a way as to explain to his fellow uh, her hermits what these demons were like and how to deal with them. Now, the thing about... Uh, Evagoras was that he was fundamentally a caring person and a pastor. And he was interested in spiritual health, you might say. I mean, he wouldn't have used the phrase now, but you could say he was interested in mental health. And you could read his writings as a very early example of uh, CBT, uh, basically think about things a bit differently. When this comes along, he's wrote, got a, got, wrote uh, quite an extensive collection of sayings um, which he was suggesting that people give back to these various demons when they confront uh, a person in their loneliness and, and isolation. So this, is, this obviously is an idea based, very Lenten, very topical. If you were in church this morning, the Gospel reading, Jesus being tempted by the devil, and how does he respond? Well, Jesus responds by answering back with a bit of scripture. Now, Evagris uh, thought that Jesus got off fairly lightly with the three temptations. His book has about 537 uh, <laughs> such temptations written down, each of which has got a piece of scripture which you're meant to quote back at the demon to send it on its way. If you look, look through this, I mean, some of, I give a few examples in, in the book, and I'm not going to give any now, but some of them are a little improbable and stretched, uh, one might say. But nonetheless, you can see there's a desire to help here. Now, what... So the logismi are primarily unhealthy aspects of the way in which our, our minds are working. Evagoras was a pastor. But this way of thinking got picked up by one of his successors called Cassian, and then by Gregory, uh, and it got turned into, the eight logismoi got turned into the seven deadly sins. Which became, and this is a very interesting shift, because for Evagrius, this way of thinking was to help people think about themselves. The language of the seven deadly sins was a, was a language that allowed a priest to think about other people and to handle the really complicated question of what to, to think about and say about what people are saying in a confessional situation. So there became a, may, a way of interpreting and judging other people and deciding what they should do by way of penitence because they were guilty of this stuff. Whereas if Agrius wasn't really thinking in terms of guilt, so that's one of the healthy things about thinking about demons, I think, is it puts these things a little bit outside you. Now, they're not so far outside as you as you're not responsible for them, but neither is it the very worst thing about you. So the guilt thing is, is, is rather played down. And this led to the seven deadly sins, which, uh, as you may know, are pride, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, greed, and sloth. At least that's the traditional list. If you look back at the history of the period, there are all sorts of uh, competing lists. But this is the fundamental list that um, uh, is generally used. And in the medieval world, they were really part of people's imagination. And if you look at uh, literature and art of the period, you see great, uh, exciting, realistic human depictions of these, um, these vices, these sins, and the ravage uh, that they're doing to people. There is a good deal of humour as well as imagery in this, uh, and it was, without saying uh, anything more, just extremely lively. The Reformation did a certain amount of casting out of babies with bathwaters, as, uh, as we know, and one of its casualties was a pretty big eclipse uh, of this way of thinking. So, and the way in which I imagine this is if you think of a church, uh, a medieval church, which would at one stage have been adorned with wall paintings, some of which, or, or, or bits of woodwork, depicting the, the seven deadly sins. And people would be looking and thinking about them, my life, this, you know, pride, what's that's going on, 
uh, what's how is greed in my life and thinking about and making up stories about it. This is replaced or taken out, and what is it replaced with? A board at the front with the Ten Commandments: one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. To put to cut a, a really long and complicated story very short, you could say the accountants had already taken over, <laughs> because suddenly you've got a checklist of numbered points, whereas before you had something a, a hugely expansive, expansive, which you would relate to in a completely different kind of way. Now, it's what I want to suggest is that uh, there are good reasons for rehabilitating the seven deadly sins tradition, but obviously not quite straightforwardly. And that's what I try in the book, do in the book. But let me just say what some of the problems with the uh, tradition of the seven deadlies uh, is. First, first of all, um, there's the point of it, about it becoming very rather legalistic and about judging others. And one thing you know about sin if you read the New Testament is that it's not an excuse to decide what's wrong with everyone else. It's something that's meant to challenge uh, yourself. You know, that's quite a big, big thing. If we were just to limit our as understanding of sin to really being uh, an understanding of ourselves, uh, we, I think we, we would resolve quite a few problems. Um, on the other hand, I mean, it's a problematic as well because the list isn't actually terribly coherent. Uh, the traditional fixing of the list was convenient, but it isn't very psychologically satisfying. You can't really see a map of human nature in that particular list. And some of them are a little bit weird, actually, the whole sloth question. It's quite a strange one. I will have a bit more to say about that. And then it's also a bit short as well. Uh, seven? Only seven? You know, why shouldn't there be an eighth, a ninth, a tenth, and, uh, and so on? And indeed, when I, I, what I've done in my own little... Uh, contribution here is to significantly expand, expand the list. Then there's the, the whole question of the kind of theological stuff of, of what does deadly or capital mean? You know, how bad are they? Is it that you know, once you've let a bit of pride slip, you're doomed? Not to mention the subtleties of pride as well. I mean, in the book that Mark mentioned earlier, Barefoot Disciple uh, book, I write about good pride and bad pride. I think it's really, really important to have a, a sense of what good pride is uh, because it's only when we know what good pride is that we can sort of really be clear about what bad pride is because obviously some pride is healthy, isn't it? What's, what's wrong with being proud of this, that or the other? Probably nothing. What's, what's wrong with thinking you're the most important person in the world? Everything. <laughs> what's wrong with thinking that you are a rival to God? Everything. That's pride in, in the bad way, but saying, actually, that went quite well. I'm rather pleased that, uh, with myself and the team. That's okay. What's wrong with it? But the, the, the language isn't, isn't good enough. So let me now put a few proposals on the table and see if I can convince you of basically the argument of the book, all of which that was a warm-up to. So here we go. I'm gonna, I'll try and rattle these out fairly quickly. If we want to talk helpfully and realistically about sin, we should revisit the tradition of the deadlies. That's a point I'd be making. Secondly, we should not imagine that mostly we are good people doing good things, which is what we mostly think about ourselves, ourselves, that is. Uh, but what we should, our starting point about ourselves should be that we are mixed up people, and more often we think we do things that are not quite right. And sometimes we do things that are a long way from being right. Even though, most of the time, we think we are good, honourable, decent, helpful, and so on. Thirdly, I haven't said this yet, I don't think that it's realistic to suppose that for most people, the issue of sin is that there is one big thing that they do that's bad, or that there's one big characteristic that they have, which is the big deal bad thing, which sort of, as it were, captivates them and holds them in thrall, the thing from which they need to be saved or redeemed. I think that much of our thinking about sin has been confused and corrupted by thinking that because such bad things happen, 
in terms of consequences, a very bad thing must have been done in the first place. And obviously, if you're dealing with murder, rape, torture, and the like, that is the case. But most of what happens isn't like that. The picture that I find really helpful when I think about the impact of sin on people and how people relate to sin is the illustration that you get in editions of Gulliver's Travels, where Gulliver is in Lilliput. So massive, massive Gulliver. How do the Lilliputians uh, control Gulliver? Lots and lots and lots and lots of tiny little threads, not one big band over his chest. Lots of tiny threads. That's where this image of the web of sin comes from. So think of sin not as the big nasty stuff that only other horrible people do and they're very ugly, uh, malicious people, but all these tiny little filaments of wrongness, as it were, that most of the time we don't notice. This is, this is one of the reasons that the review in The Guardian was so hostile, uh, because I'm talking about stuff in the book that the author thought was banal. But the whole point of the book was to say that there's much naughtiness much evil is in the, what apparently banal. And you can excuse yourself from all these things, and that's fine, but when you add them up together, you're stuck. You've, you've excused yourself, you've found reasons for being stuck. Whereas the point is to be, religious point, of course, to be, to be liberated. I, was, I found that particularly galling because I'd already written a book about very nasty stuff, uh, uh, and, but with a view of what does forgiveness look like after it. But I didn't want to write a book for everyone to read, which is all about rapists and murderers. Sin, rape and murder. Oh, well, thank goodness I'm not like those rapists and murderers. All I do is have a bit of a go about, you know, some, my closest colleague or whatever, gossip or whatever. No, no, the whole point is that the gossip stuff is bad as well. Uh, this is another point when you, with, that I, I think is probably quite true and I tried to bring across in the book. And that, if you, that is that the person who suffers most from these relatively banal, small-scale, but nonetheless entrapping aspects of who we are is ourself. Our, the viciousness of our vice is that we suffer from it. Or we suffer from it most, because obviously we suffer from the sum of all these vices, whereas all sorts of people would suffer little bits of harm from the different ones, we suffer hugely. So there is a certain amount of um, self-interest in getting all this sorted. There is no settled list of the deadlies, though some of the things are going to be almost universal. So I think there's, I, d I don't think the seven deadly sins list is right or particularly helpful, um, but there is, we do need to think about what all this stuff is, and I'll just say what that is in a minute. And here's a point, I think that oh, I've been convinced by other writers, you might say, I just think this up, that some sins, there are some sins and vices that the Christian tradition has very badly ignored. And that I hadn't really realised that until I started to, to study this. And my two uh, big, for instances, of this would be cruelty. Why isn't cruelty on the list of deadly sins? Very strange. Just reading David Copperfield, actually, uh, and there's a whole business of the religious motivation of the brutalization of the young David by his stepfather and his sister. And the cruelty which has been inflicted on children and other vulnerable people by people, by those who believe in original sin and it needed to be beaten out of people and all that. And the cruelty of torture uh, for religious reasons and so on. It's just astonishing to anyone outside uh, the sort of Christian frame of reference, but it should be astonishing to us as well that we haven't been sensitive to cruelty down the years. I still find it pretty mysterious. And the other thing I think that we are, the Christian uh, uh, tradition hasn't been uh, good about naming as a bad thing is snobbery as well. I'd be, I mean, snobbery these days is dressed up in, in words which have got ism at the end, basically. Um, it's the same thing, but the amount of straightforward snobbery that there has been in, in the Christian culture, I think, is, is extraordinary. And I think it still persists uh, quite a lot as well. Not in the standardisms that everyone calls everyone out about, but in other more subtle ways. And that, of course, I suppose, is a subset of pride in a way. But it needs to be named for, uh, in its own way. Some things are really difficult to get right. And I think these vary from time to time and from generation to generation. And my view is that two things that we find particularly difficult to get right these days 
And therefore, two areas of life where sin abounds are money and time. And I think, probably, I think self-esteem as well, actually. I'll, I'll squeeze that one in, uh, in just as I'm thinking about it. I think, I think we are a bit muddled up about the self-esteem thing. Now, talking like this is a helpful way to draw the Christian tradition close to the worlds of psychotherapy and literature and aspects of other religions and approaches and anything which is interested in the question of living well. I joined a reading group uh, in Cambridge this, this last term and it was mostly youngish academics in the area of development studies and it was so refreshing and good, extremely international group. I mean, I, I think mostly there was never two people from the same nation or uh, ethnicity in, in, in the room. Uh, and what I felt that we all, everyone there had in common was A, they wanted to understand the book that we were, we were looking at together really well, and they wanted to understand how to live well in today's complicated world. They really wanted, that was the motivation. Think, well, what could be better than that? We need to reach out to, to people who've got that kind of uh, desire. And indeed, you know, engaged Buddhism is very, very important and significant too. And engaged Buddhism has ways of thinking about what's wrong with the way in which we live, what's wrong with us, which isn't as cranked up about judgment and guilt as our uh, inherited Christ Christian tradition. And of course, the whole business of mindfulness has just kind of projected itself uh, into contemporary culture as if from nowhere. I remember reading that word for the first time uh, when I was actually in, in the United States and picked up some, some books on Buddhism, mindfulness. I thought, oh, that sounds quite interesting. And it was before uh, the current thing. Now, that must have been 2003 or something, just, just a few decade and a bit ago. Now, you can't move for mindfulness, uh, as it were. I mean, that could be a bit of a joke, couldn't it? But you know, you know what I mean? You know, the, the NHS will do it, the, the companies will teach people. I mean, we, in my college, the HR department arranged mindfulness walks. You don't find engaged Christianity or pastoral Christianity got the same stuff to offer. We, but we have, because we've got all this stuff to offer. Right. Rather than draw up a long list of sin vices, I think it's better to think in terms of a number of clusters. But I think this whole thing of thinking of demons and bad thoughts and passions is quite good, because it's quite imaginative. And when you're being imaginative, you go a little bit off your guard and not so defensive, and I think that's a much better way of demon wrestling than saying, all right, I've got a really clearly defined list, and either on this list, or I don't need to worry about you. Because, in fact, most of our sinfulness is going to come to us in a form where we do need to worry about it, but it doesn't come ready-labeled as I am a bad thing. If you were the devil and you wanted people to do bad things, how would you do it? You would try and disguise the bad things. What would the best disguise be? Good things. Hide the bad, th pretend that the that bad things are good things and get people to praise each other for them and you'd be away. You could create havoc in no time. My guess is that's actually what goes on. So the clusters, I've arranged this book, uh, there's sort of six or seven chapters in the middle which have got the clusters of vices in them. And these are my clusters. The first one is a load of things that are naughty but nice. These are kind of everyday demons like uh, intoxication and so on. Not, not very hardcore, I don't think. The second area is vicious regards. It's to do with the way in which we, we look at other people. I'm rather pleased with that phrase, if I may be a bit prideful. And I commend it to you. Think about vicious regards. Kind regards, vicious regards. Impossible ideals. We have a lot. We live, we persecute ourselves with impossible ideals. I'm going to give you, tell you what these are. These lead us to hypocrisy defensiveness, certainty, and perfectionism, in my view. You see the kind of language I'm, I'm trying to get in here as, as, as sinful. Temporal disjunctions. I gave a hint of this earlier when I said we get time wrong a lot. Temporal disjunctions is my kind of interpretation of what Evagoras was talking about when he used the word acedia, word which are often translated sloth, but more recently, people say, we don't want to translate it sloth because it doesn't mean sloth at all. Something completely. What does it mean? Uh, don't know. So let's use the Greek word that no one understands. So I've shifted that into temporal disjunctions, which means getting time wrong. Getting time wrong. I think getting time right 
is a massively important wisdom task. It's not a management task, it's a wisdom task. But getting time wrong creates havoc, and we do it in lots and lots of ways. Um, Sloth I've, described, I've written about, boredom is a way in which we get time wrong. Busyness is a way in which we get time wrong. Don't get me started on that. Well, you might want to later. And nostalgia is a way in which we get time wrong. Longing to live in a world which no longer exists. Being homesick for the past, when you should, obviously, be living in the present and towards the future. And you could have a countervailing one to that, which would be um, excessive future orientation and forgetfulness about the past. Of course, it's not right to forget the past, but longing for the past, that's no good. Um, then we have tragic desires. These are desires that we have that can never be fulfilled, but we behave as if they can be fulfilled. And, that, and that's extremely tragic uh, and does massive amount of damage. Uh, so I think lust falls into that category, greed. And then I talk about insatiability, which of course drives economic growth, but is tragic because it pushes us beyond what, the point where growth is helpful. And um, control. Lots of people long for control. They want to control. They want to completely control, but of course it's tragic, not because it's a good idea that people take responsibility, but you can't quite get that degree of control over things, and it certainly shouldn't be vested precisely in the individuals who want to have it. I think this really connects up with the sort of stuff Evagoras was, was thinking and worrying about in the desert, but his sort of version for, for today. And the very last cluster is called um, malicious tendencies. And it's, well, in all the other areas, I've got four or five examples. Malicious tendencies, I've only got three, because I don't think it's a terribly big deal, actually. Uh, I put cruelty, rage, and revenge there. But I don't think much of what, as I said earlier, much of what is really horrible that happens, happens because people want to be horrible. It's for other reasons, and that's why this is, this is so uh, important. Now, speaking of getting time wrong, I realise it's just gone 22, uh, and I would be more than happy to stop uh, there and take some questions. And if there are no questions, I'll just ramble on as I've been rambling on so far and get a bit further into it. But you've got, you've got um, the outline of what I'm s suggesting, uh, that there is a middle ground um, of human sinfulness that it, it was big, which was explored, first of all, by the desert hermits, then it was turned into a kind of judgmental system. Then it was lost. Now we need to sort of recover it and give it a good old shake and say, well, actually, when it comes to sin, let's not think so much about original sin or actual sin, but let's think about the way in which these sorts of things are playing in our own lives. That's actually my argument. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen. And now it's time to uh, ask your questions of Stephen. And if you can, you can either come back here and answer, or you can sit there and project, okay. so that um, I can try and uh, repeat the questions so everybody can hear them. Um, I just, um, if I can just start, the present political climate is one that I think those people who are trying to live well. In, that you've talked about are, are, are finding difficult at the moment uh, and maybe even sinful in, in some of its priorities. Uh, a friend of mine has just been staying with me from America and said that he thought the climate in the air there at the moment is if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. <laughs> I, just, I just wondered uh, if you can help us detect some of the sinfulness in the present political climates, not just in America, but that are around at the moment? Well, um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the world has, has changed uh, over the last year quite, quite significantly. Um, and I, I remember thinking um, 
early part of last year, just think in a year's time we could be out of Europe and Donald Trump could be the president of America. That's unimaginable. So clearly it was unimaginable, at least to me, but it's now appertained and we have the rise of populist uh, politics and right-wing politics. It's, 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 it's very tricky, isn't it? I think I, I find it difficult to construct something very helpful to say because my emphasis, I got asked this, a similar question in a way at a talk I gave, gave at Reading and someone was slightly telling me off because my uh, approach to sin wasn't looking at social sin and, and politics enough. Right. And I kind of answered and said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a psychologist, so I tend to kind of focus on what's going on within individuals rather than what's on their culture. But that's, that's maybe a bit too easy. The question would be, um, what we expect of ourselves in response to a situation where politics is taking the kind of turn that it's taking. And I think that I would start to name, maybe come up, I didn't put this in, the, in my list of sins, and I'm not quite sure where it would fit, but some kind of disengaging cynicism. I think that, that's something that's quite, um, quite a sinful part of, what, of many people's response, which is, a kind, is connected up with something I do write about in, in the book, and that is abjectness. Uh, because while the Christian tradition is often banged on about how, about, about, how, about how bad pride is, it hasn't often gone on about how bad it is to put yourself down and say there's nothing that I can do, I don't really count. So the, I think there is, there's, so that's coming to the point that maybe there has been in a liberal consensus uh, in the Western world uh, a, a degree of complacency and cynicism and failing to look at the consequences of what seems like general positive progress and growth, failing to look at the underside of that, and now that underside is, is that, or, or the, the community or the collection of individuals who've been losing out through what seems to many people like positive progress, that's beginning to speak. Now the question is, how is, how is one going to listen and, and hear that? And is one going to sort of fully take on board the questions about uh, justice, uh, injustice, fairness, shares, stakes in the future. I mean, just sort of go on to one thing that I think we've ignored. I said this, um, I remember, to a headmaster of a school uh, and his wife when they were having a, a meal with us one evening, and I said it in a rather stark way. Um, and I said, you know, the question, one of the questions that someone's got to answer is, what's the point of young men? And they did take it a bit uh, as a bit of a stark question. But the point was, you know, the boys at their school were growing up with a sense that actually we can't take those men who've gone before us as role models. We don't know quite where we fit into things anymore. And that's, there's, I think there's that question of what's the point of me now is a question that we need to be engaging with on behalf of many people who are feeling that they've lost out. And that's a very different thing to building up your own self-esteem, of course. So it's a bit rambly, but it's kind of a no, way in which the, this line of thinking might The social it. side as well as individual is something that... So questions. Uh, yes, please. Could I follow that up? There were several categories that, that are often used in, in talking about sin. Uh, structural sin, which I think is what... what uh, and sins of omission and sins of commission. Uh, and I think sins of omission are related to structural sin because it seems to me that uh, we are compromised by such structural sin in a lot of controversy over the bequests made by Rhodes to Oxford and Colston to Bristol. But uh, no discussion of the way in which a whole generation or generations were compromised by the, the acceptance of that. And, uh, so much of the time, are often compromised uh, uh, by the fact that there are these structural sins, uh, and sometimes relating to a uh, uh, complete uh, innocence of, uh, of, of the evil that is happening. Um, and, and if I may follow that up, another um, aspect that, that I didn't think you 
almost that point, considered waste. Okay, so we have okay. the compromise of the, the structures of sin set up and sin as waste. Yeah, I, I, um, I, the only moment at which I spoke about waste was um, when I talked about God smiling uh, and said, you know, and in the process of whatever good that we've done, no resources were squandered, as it were. So I think, I think that the, the question of use of resources, so in an economic sense, but in a, a holistic economic sense, is a very important thing to try and take it into account. I think the fundamental sin about waste, um, probably there are two actually, but one fundamental one is to do with throwing things away. And there is a cognitive sin in that, as it were, uh, and it is to do with the concept of a way. There is no away. There is no kind of no place where it's appropriate to chuck stuff that you don't want anymore. That's a kind of conceit that we've developed, and we, we, as the world gets smaller, so that we, we have to learn that one. Um, as in, ter in terms of using excessive waste, also means failing to understand the nature of the material world, in particular, properly, and failing to to recognise its. And, and I mean, you would expect, wouldn't you? A, a culture which has distinguished radically between the spiritual of value and the material of less value to not have a good relationship with the material world particularly and waste would be part of that. But if you have, if your spirituality is thoroughly caught up in the material world then the whole question of waste or being un, un, unsteward-like with the material world would come out. Now the, 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 other, the other thing I that you mentioned there was about uh, the compromise uh, that we find ourselves in because of the actions of our predecessors or forebears and the way in which they are commemorated. I talk about this a little bit uh, in the section on snobbery of all things. And I just wanted to, to read you a paragraph or maybe a bit more because I... Um, no, just one paragraph. I wrote this just towards the end, all that comes near the beginning of the book. It was a paragraph that slipped in near the end. I'll see if this connects at all. Since the, middle of, well, it's, since the middle of the 20th century, the language of snobbery has been overtaken by that of the of prejudice, and it's moved on from being a matter of taste, decency, and amusement to an, become an affront against justice and social inclusion. I talk about Thackeray's uh, uh, book here, so I'll refer to it again. Rather than Thackeray's comedy of Victorian snobberies, we now have to wrestle with the serious matter of equal opportunities. In our common mind today, to, ref to fail to respect and to promote that worthy ideal is a far more serious matter than sin, just as to be exposed as a racist is not to be seen as in possession of a vice, but to be, well, it's hard to say what, a disgrace, a pariah, a demon to be cast out. I make this point uh, not in order to praise racism, but to hint as delicately as I can that even the most heinous of unreasonable, prejudicial attitudes, those which make life a misery for others and prevent the proper development of a flourishing society, are quite possibly to be found somewhere in the dark side of the soul of even those who protest against the evil itself. Racist? Me? Well, perhaps. I'm going to go on a bit here. M me a racist? Me a snob? Well, perhaps I used to be, when more under the influence of mum and dad, or maybe the grandparents, back in the day before we realised it was wrong. When we think of the attitudes that were once acceptable and are now deplorable, we are tempted to what Wendell Berry calls historical self-righteousness, which we could think as, of as a form of moral, historic snobbery. We like to suppose that had we lived in the bad old days, we had, would have behaved better than our forebears. And yet, as he rightly puts it, the probability is overwhelming that if we had belonged to the generations we deplore, we too would have behaved deplorably. But this is not the worst of it. Looking forward with moral imagination, we have to accept the wise but tr chilling truth in Berry's next sentence. The probability is overwhelming that we belong to a generation that will be found by its successors 
to have behaved deplorably. Yes. I think, I, think I, I, generally speaking, uh, agree with, with what you're saying and, and certainly warm to, to the direction in which that takes the conversation and thought. I think the, the way in which I slightly rephrase it would be in terms of the question of hope. How can we have hope for ourselves? What, once, because this is, this is the problem. We start looking at the dark side. Oh, my goodness. You know, this is just dreadful. So where's hope going to come from? And I think that, that hope has got three bases, uh, probably. One is somewhere within our side, inside ourselves, some other person, and something transcendence, God, essentially. So I, I think that this, I mean, I, I found it pretty miserable writing this, in a way. And I, I kept writing to the, to the editor saying, oh, I'm fed up with all this nastiness, you know. I'd really like to write a book called The Light Side of the Soul, or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> And, but it is important, uh, but and what I describe the book as, you know, what I try to do is, is to go into the dark side of the soul and shine a torch on the demons, give them a fright. But we do have to think about where, how the torch is powered and, where, and how we have enough strength in the ability of transcending and getting out of this web and snares in order to be able to go on that journey. So I think there's, there's two sides to it. One is realism. Uh, about the pernicious nature of some apparently banal things, which pulls us up short. But secondly, we do need to have some grounds for, for hope and existential optimism about our spiritual selves. And I think that's a really important part of what you might call a church or a community, a spiritual community, for people to give that to each other. Even if you don't believe in yourself, I am kind of radically committed to believing in you and helping you out of these snares. And it's not particularly my job to tell you how bad you are, but to encourage you to believe that you could transcend from that badness. Time for just one more here. Yes, please. Um, was the obsession with sin and counterfeit good like God could be seen as a flip side of the same coin? And the tradition which I'm most very much looks at issues of discernment and context. And I just wondered to what extent you engage either specifically with that tradition or with those ideas of discernment and context in the book. Uh, no, don't. Um don't, don't do that. <laughs> but but there is, there's plenty of other people who do, as it were. I mean, you know, there's, there's lots of Ignatian spirituality written. Um, there's hardly a time to give a, give a thumbnail sketch of what that might be. But you could tell from what I was saying about the loss, I think, that was experienced by our culture at the Reformation of the vivid imagery and the human connectedness and the power of the language of these kinds of sins and vices to connect with the imagination, that that is a very natural and positive way in which to go. The thing, thing I wonder about, though, with, um, with, the, with the Ignatian approach is, is sometimes whether it's quite objective enough and whether there's enough room for sort of grit coming into us and, and to really challenge us uh, to face things that are uncomfortable and de-energizing, but nonetheless real and need to be taken on board. But that's, generally speaking, I mean, it's, it's a hugely creative and positive uh, way to go. It's a huge sin if we go beyond two o'clock, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to end it. Um, I'd just like to say, uh, however, uh, as we tie this session up, when I, when I read Stephen, and I, I've read a lot of, of his work and very um, appreciative of it, uh, there are a couple of themes that always strike me. The first is, actually, he's just brought out a book called God Curious, which I really commend to you to hand on to anybody who's thinking about studying theology or wondering why theology is still a subject around in our own day. 
Uh, and that, that idea of curiosity is something which I really, you hold both God and the importance of curiosity together. Often at times when actually a lot of people would say you, you can't hold one with the other. So I, I thank you for that and we've seen it here just now. But also you mentioned compassion uh, and how complicated a word it is. Um, C.S. Lewis reminded us that uh, he talked about a woman he knew and he said, oh, she lived for others and you could tell the others by their hunted expression. <laughs> it's, a, it's a complex thing. Um, but your writing is compassionate. I think it, it is literally, it suffers with human beings. It, it understands where they are and who they are, light and shadow. And finally, I do find your writing hopeful. I actually found this book hopeful. I've just come back from a theology conference in the Church of Sweden and they're, they're celebrating Luther, uh, 500th anniversary of the, the nailing of the thesis. And uh, they ended the conference with a, a line of Luther, um, who once said, apparently, even if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree. Mm. And uh, that sort of hope, I find, you know, you, you could point to the world ending tomorrow in those themes but actually I, I think you have planted something. And uh, so there's no vicious regard here. There's only uh, an admiring regard. And on behalf of everyone here, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.